we need more participants for the struggle session, but we also need more. What did they did they call them struggle sessioners? Like what did they call the <laughs> the people administrating the uh, the session? Instructors, administrators. <laughs> yeah, instructors. And, yeah, instructor, yeah, administrators. Probably something like administrator or instructor. Um, but yeah, a hundred percent. Well, did they? At <laughs> <laughs> real time googling. <laughs> Let, let's get into the 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 actual meat of the <laughs> of the episode here. <laughs> Most of the people um, subjected to struggle sessions were called llamas. Former Tibetan government officials, okay. (laughs) Never mind, let's go into the episode. Hello, comrades. It's episode 275 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And I am uh, I'm, I am very excited to once again restart, bring back online the TMK Book Club. We've identified a real winner here, um, in part because we're not going into it based, uh, you know, uh, based on on reputation alone. Um, it's uh, it's one that I, I have read this book. Um, we were talking about it in our group chats, and and I was ex- I was saying how fucking good it is and how much I love it, and so we we're just like, let's just actually do it. Let's go through it. It's it's meaty enough. It's definitely long enough, um, and it is uh, just I mean one of those one of those books that um, it's been a while since I've read a book that I actually like really look forward to going back to reading in terms of like, I I actively try to carve out time because it doesn't feel like I'm doing it out of uh, a work obligation, but, but because it's so rich, um, that is of course, mute compulsion, a Marxist theory of the economic power of capital, uh, by Soren Mao out, out by out from Verso books, um, very, very new. I mean, just came out this year, uh, January 2023. So we're, we're getting in hot, um, hot off the, the presses. And uh, like I said, um, when I announced it in the, you know, for the open of the last free episode, this is, this book is just so extremely good in large part because it's so extremely clear analytical and erudite in this like really fundamental analysis of power value and capital that it's doing the way that it is um and you know of course we're going to go through it chapter by chapter um but the way that this book is bringing out this idea of mute compulsion or economic power from marx's uh, work and and it's a it's an idea that you know, is kind of scattered throughout Marx's whole kind of uh, body of work, never really fully getting um, uh, a full analysis, a full explicit kind of comprehensive um, detailing. It's just this thing that Marx kind of refers to um, throughout throughout his body of work. Um, and because of that, it, it has kind of resided in the background 
of Marxist analysis. It's it's very it's commonsensical, um, but it has not ever really been brought to the foreground and like fully theorized, fully analyzed as a as 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 a unique um, and important relationship of domination in capitalism, which is fundamental, foundational to the existence of capitalism. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go through how, uh, you know, a lot of kind of theories of power, especially Marxist theories of power, um, focus more on questions of uh, coercion, so really explicit, forceful domination and ideology. So the kind of more, you know, very direct, but but works on the mind, works on how people think. Work rather than working on the body in the way that coercion does, it works on the mind, um, and that's where a lot of kind of power exists in this like kind of binary or couplet, this relationship between coercion and ideology. Um, but this book. Mute compulsion is really pulling out a, a kind of an environmental um, relationship of domination, a kind of domination that doesn't um, work on the body or mind in direct ways, but works on all of the conditions in which we live uh, and, and reproduce ourselves. And so it, it, it's one of those books that as I, as I read it, everything, you know, the argument seems so commonsensical, but the analysis of it is anything but. Um, it is so clear. It brings, I think, new a new understanding of Marx's whole kind of critique of political economy, of Marx's theories of, of capitalism and of social relations. Uh, it just brings a new understanding of all this to the forefront. Like, you know, I'm I, I, I'm I'm you know reading this not being some uh, neophyte to, to Marxism. You know, these are things I think about, write about, and actively use in my work every single day um, and talk about on this podcast all the fucking time. Um, and yet going through Sora Mao's work, it, it, it's like giving me this deeper, richer understanding of these relationships um, because the analysis is so crystal clear and on point. Um, I, I, I'm loving it. So I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, excited to reread it in a lot more detail because I have to then talk about it with you guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think this is, uh, this is exciting. And I feel like my introduction to Marx was not through Marx himself, but through David Harvey and his works, specifically thinking through you know, capital remaking urban life, and then his reading series and reading guides on on capital, and his guided essays, and then going from that to Marx, right, and then from there reading various Marxists and their interpretations or attempts to apply Marxist theory. And I am excited, you know, really to read this one because I'm I've never come across um, Mao's work before. I think this is probably also the first um, first rearticulation of Marx that I've read in probably a while, maybe in years. I mean, like we've read work, of course, that applies it, that uses it, but it's not again going back to the roots and looking at a way another way to theorize capital. Um, 
and another way to think through um, why capitalist production continue, how it works, why it continues to go on, uh, what relationship it has to various forms of power that plague us, right? It's more so been specific applications of capital to fossil fuel industry or to labor or to, you know, specific forms of trade or to the development of specific industries, right? That have been the ones that have, have tackled. So I think that this book club will be also a great chance to like, you know, talk through, I think like, you know, we spent years on the pod in one way or another talking through Marxist and anarchist analyses, uh, but it would be good to like have a book for the club that is going step by step offering a theory of power and capital that we can like, you know, then step back and think through and reply and, 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 and converge or see, you know, what mixes and doesn't mix with our own analysis and understanding um, of the world through like, you know, our, our, our technology focused lens. Yeah, no, I, because it's, the reason why we haven't seen that kind of like going back and 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 you know reinvigorating the basics or whatever rather than just you know applying it is because it's such a daunting task i mean it's also it's also kind of a task uh that's inherently hubristic in some ways to be like i'm going to go and uh uncover like a new like new theories new ways of understanding marxism not not new ways of applying it or advancing it through, uh, you know, the the existing and, and ongoing relationships of contemporary society, um, which is what I try to do in my work. Um, but but be, being like, I'm going to go back and actually be like, there, there's some theory here that that yeah. no one's been paying attention to. It's it's almost hubristic. <laughs> I don't know how all all these nerds read Marx so much, man. You know, the first time. It's a hard time. <laughs> Let me tell you that. You know, <laughs> you learn a lot. But fuck, man. Should, do I need to learn German? Like, am I missing something? So, you know, but, but I think also, of course, you know, you can't tackle that work alone. And I think that's also one of the things I enjoyed about this book club and other book clubs. I mean, like, most of the, like, you know, the real heady philosophical or theoretical texts I've tackled, I've only really understood them by reading them with other people. Uh, cause that's, you know, then you can raise the questions and then I can say really stupid things, but like, I just don't understand this. And that, um, I think is really, I think necessary. And that's also probably something that prevents me not from, from, uh, spending a lot of time with Marxist analysis because there are really good translators and articulators of Marxist thought, um, but from do I think me and maybe other people from like even trying to like do that rearticul the daunting rearticulation of it in terms of like a new theorization that might advance our analysis, right? Instead mm -hmm. of just like an application. So it'll be, so it'll be good. I'm glad someone else did it, and we can read them. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely absolutely and i've been uh, i've been using it in my work already because i mean a lot of my yeah, work yeah. is ba a lot of my work is basically just uh, an, an argument to go back to the basics of marxist analysis yeah. and apply it to tech contemporary technology like too smart. i mean like 
you know? Yeah. Like too smart. I mean, like, and the work that too smart is based on like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what my, my most influential paper is called when data is capital. And it really yeah. is literally just what if Marx was writing about data, uh, you know, in capital volume one, one my- what would that look like? <laughs> one of the first times I came across your work is when someone was, making fun of a lot of the data is capital analyses and they're like but not jathan sadowski's <laughs> we specifically bracketed yours out to praise it hell yeah i love it i love it <laughs> um but but mal's work um it's it's like so already readily plugging like mm. as i was at, when i read the his book the first time um, mm-hmm. I, I kept going back. So I'm almost done drafting my second book right now, which mm-hmm. is on technology and capitalism. And I, I was going back through chapters, just plugging in quotes <laughs> from, from mute compulsion being like, that says what I wanted to say much better here and here <laughs> and here. Um, Give them a little so, salute. That's right. That's right. So, all right, Soren Mao, um, the reason why you haven't read much of his work is because there's not much out there um, as far as really? I know. I mean, like, you know, he's he's been kind of, you know, doing the writing. He's he's a Danish communist philosopher. Um, and, you know, I was I was looking at CV being like, yo, what else has he written? And there's there's honestly not a whole lot. Um, the the book is kind of, is based on his dissertation, which he finished in 2019, um, and so like it's all still very recent. And it seems like just looking at his CV, he's now based back in Denmark. He's a postdoc um, at uh, Aarhus University in Denmark, um, but he was for two years um, a postdoc at, at Goldsmiths uh, in the. I think the like the cultural politics department or something like that, which I imagine right after his dissertation, which is where I imagine he revised the dissertation into mute compulsion. So this is a dissertation book, which all which explains in part like the hubris here to be like I'm a I'm a PhD student. I'm going to give like a radical new theorization of Marx because uh, you know uh, uh, he's a rel- he's a young guy. I mean he's he's my age, um, so. You know, young, youngish, but youngish, young for academia, uh, and so you know, it kind of takes that like youthful, uh, you know, hubris to be like, for my PhD, I'm going to radically re-theorize Marx in a in a new way, <laughs> and the vast majority of people fail um, when they try to do that, but th- but this but this man succeeded, and I think the book has rightfully been. Um, kind of, I haven't seen a bad word about it. It's been kind of resoundingly welcomed and reviewed as a successful book um, for for good reason. Really, like uh, 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 making me think of, um, I think Sohi Kaito, the Japanese Marxist who has, um, you know, uh, Marx in the Anthropocene or whatever its new title is. Um, that you know in the English translation, I think he's also very similarly like a very young, um, very young philosopher who is going back and rereading Marx, um, not in terms of economic power like Sora Mao, but in terms of of, of nature uh, and and the and environment, right? And that and that book has of course become a, a runaway hit that I'm sure we'll talk about on the on the podcast uh, once I've um, finally read it. And, and gotten it but um i i think we're kind of in this really interesting moment here where you have this like generation of young 
Marxist philosopher is kind of reinvigorating Marx, not through good summaries, but through like new theorization of Marx, which I think is extremely interesting and really great. And the fact that also these have been really welcomed uh, by the general public, you know, like Kaito's book being a, a bestseller in Japan, you know, Soren Mao's book be- becoming, you know, really, really well known really quickly um, amongst, you know, our crowd, but like widely reviewed and things like that. And so uh, I, I think it, it, it's, I think it says as much about the quality of these works as it does the contemporary like the material conditions of our time when people are looking for ways to understand it critically um, and seeing these analyses in the Marxist uh, verve and recognizing just like they make sense. Like this is true um, that this resonates with my own experience of, of life and society and the planet. Right. And I, I want to quote from um one of the 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 kind of blurbs from on you know Andreas Malm, another favorite of ours, who uh, Sora Mao draws a lot from Andreas Malm's work um, in his book. I think Malm is Swedish, Mao is Danish, so they're just across the bridge from each other, and I'm sure that they know each other. You know, Andreas Malm blurbs the book um, and says. Written with verve and clarity, analytically sharp and dialectically shrewd in equal measure, mute compulsion reinvigorates historical materialism for the mid-21st century. Through close readings of Marx and critical dialogues with contemporary theory, it throws up fresh insights for a new generation of Marxists, as well as for longtime connoisseurs. A big red book to cherish. Um, and of course, another friend of the show, Aaron Beninov, blurbs it and calls it a, an instant classic, the best introduction to Marxist thought in any language. And, you know, I would agree. And of course, the 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 foreword, the preface of the book um, was written by Michael Heinrich, who Michael Heinrich is a very, very well-known um, Marxist historian. He's a historian of philosophy and he's a historian of Marx. You know, he has written uh, very, very well, well-known um, introductory text to Marx's, uh, you know, all three volumes of Marx's Capital. Um, he's he's got this ongoing, massive, multi-volume biography of Marx uh, that's in the works. You know, Michael Heinrich is an extremely well-known historian of Marx, and he wrote the foreword to the book um, for for mute compulsion. Now, I want to actually read a little bit from it because you know what the foreword is only a few pages, and it mostly just kind of. Uh, lays out like why it's a great book and what the book does. Um, we'll get into all that, but I think the way he starts it off a, a, in a bit more personal vein really says, a, I think, sets the stage for like who Soren now is, this like young communist you know, philosopher, and what this book is trying to do and what it succeeds in doing. So Michael Heinrich writes, I first met Soren Mao in November 2017 at the annual conference in London of the journal Historical Materialism. When we talked off after his paper presentation, he asked me if I knew of any literature that dealt more specifically with the Marxian concept of the mute compulsion of economic relations. I couldn't think of a single title. Soren then told me that he wanted to write a dissertation on this concept. 
At first, I was a bit perplexed. I had often myself quoted the mute compulsion that Marx talks about in the chapter on so-called primitive accumulation and had also used it in many discussions. The idea behind it, that under certain circumstances, it is not persons, but economic conditions that exert compulsion on formerly free workers, seemed almost self-explanatory to me. It took only two or three sentences to make clear what was meant by it. Until now, it had never occurred to me that this concept might need a separate analysis. My surprise was similar to that in a game of chess, when in an opening that has been analyzed in most variations up to the 15th or 20th move, one is confronted with an innovation on the 4th. Either such a move is terribly stupid, or it is insanely good. As I realized fairly quickly, Soren's idea was not stupid at all. Uh, and so, I mean, I think that's that that is also, I think, a really nice way to understand this like concept of mute compulsion and like the kind of the theoretical innovation here, writing a whole dedicated separate analysis of it is it's one of those things that like seems so commonsensical, so self-explanatory, um, so obvious that no one has thought to pick it up and run with it. Right. And I, and, and like that is all that is so much of like actual real innovation, whether it's in thinking or it's in technology or whatever, is not like creating something nobody has ever thought of before, but taking something that everybody notices, um, but nobody actually pays attention to and paying attention to it. Right. And I think that like in a, in a serious, dedicated way. And I think that's that's exactly what uh, Mao is doing here with this concept of mute compulsion, which comes from, uh, as Heinrich you know, alluded to, comes from uh, a chapter, a quote, a passage from a chapter in volume one about primitive accumulation. And we'll, we'll get to that when we actually get to Mao's introduction here. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just think that's a really nice kind of context for understanding this project and 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 how Mao is kind of coming at it. Right, right. Like trying to build this edifice for understanding like okay, capital we it's it's well trod terrain that even though crisis hits capitalism all the time and as he opens up in the book and into the in the dissertation, crisis is the name of the game. This is still the dominant economic system. There has to be something else that's going on be, uh, that's either sublime or overwhelming in addition to all the other things that capitalism you know, uh, ass assaults everyone with um, that is resulting in capitalists and more capitalists being made. And whether that's through you know social means or whether that's through you know capital in of itself growing and growing and growing, there has to be something else going on, right? That we can use to try to understand with the crisis and why the why the contradictions don't yield immediately to collapse. And I think that's interesting, you know, as someone who also has not someone unlike them and you know others have not poured over Marx a lot. Like that idea, it was very interesting to come across this in the forward and in the intro where. This idea that he was able to take an insight that Marx had um, and try to, you know, massively expand it as a way to 
try to better understand what's going on with this mode of production and how a better analysis of it might yield to a better way of like analyzing fault lines and 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 points of intervention and opportunities uh, to you know hasten the collapse or the transformation of uh, capitalism. Yeah, and and so the the book starts off in the introduction then with I think another one of these and the, like and that Luxembourg quote is a banger. A, <laughs> you want to read a, it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so this is the epigraph of the introduction. When the ancient slave, crucified by his master, writhed in ineffable agony, when the serf collapsed under the rod of the corvee overseer, or under the burden of labor and misery, at least the crime of man against man, society against the individual, lay open, exposed, atrocious in its nakedness, blatant in its brutality. The crucified slave, the martyred serf, died with a curse on its lips, and on the dying gaze met his tormentors with hatred and a promise of revenge. Only bourgeois society draws a veil of invisibility over its crimes. It's such Chop a it up, fucking Chop it up. hardcore <laughs> way to start your book <laughs> with mm-hmm. that with that epigraph. I, I was look. I looked up the reference to see because I've never heard that one before. Me um, I've never too, seen it buddy. before. <laughs> Uh, and I looked up the reference, and it comes from like a like an article she wrote in a German newspaper, right? So I imagine um, Mal probably translated it from the German himself, right? So I it's like do. also being like, do I need to learn German so I can, <laughs> yeah. so I can get access to these fucking bangers that are hidden away from me? My favorite things is when epigraphs are not even from the famous works. It's just like some fucking uh, rant that like marks shout out in, in, in a petty ass argument. There's some, some like current news blog or the equivalent of like a blog essentially for Rosa Luxemburg. <laughs> She's like, hey, let me just drop this like really, uh, really sick uh, reconstruction of a historical trend. No, I love it. I love it. And I, and he's right. And he's right. As this, as this introduction lays out, that's what the books that's that's the money that's the money right what happens when bourgeois society draws this veil of invisibility right why 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 is there this veil of invisibility what are the consequences of it who is drawing it you know and you know should it be removed i think are all like fair questions that are, that spring out of that absolutely and and so the the book starts with i think another like really basic obvious question that seems so basic and obvious that no one really pays it a lot of heed or or few people do um right which is you know one the 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 unassailable fact that you know cap, uh, capitalism is a a system of crisis it's just a system of rolling crises going from one crisis to another to another to another um you know and 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 crises of different different fashions different degrees you know they hit you in different ways and yet we know that as 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 my rights today we know that capitalism has not only survived but actually been strengthened in and through crises revolutions uprisings wars and pandemics Capitalist expansion and entrenchment amid crisis and unrest, that is our conjuncture, and it invites us to ask some important questions. How does capital manage to sustain its grip on social life? 
How is it even possible that a social order so volatile and hostile to life can persist for centuries? Why hasn't capitalism collapsed yet? You know, I, I like. I think that uh, all, all but the, all but the communists. It's really the communists who are continually asking, like, why hasn't why why is why hasn't this collapsed yet? Or, or rather, what's more common is the communists predicting that the the next collapse is the final collapse, right? And being proven wrong again and again and again that um, actually uh, not only was the next collapse not the final collapse. Uh, it was actually uh, like like a shot of adrenaline directly into the heart of capital, and now it's a, now it's bigger and stronger than ever before, and 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 so you know we can accept this as like a historical fact, and it and it is for sure, but it does raise I think some really important theoretical questions of why, <laughs> why has this system which is so thoroughly prone to volatility, so thoroughly proven to be hostile to human life, except for all but the very, very tippy top. And even then, those people are hollowed out by alienation and commodity fetishism. Like they, they're not even having a good time. The people at the top of the system are not even having a good time, you know? And so why is it that the system has uh, still exist? Why does it still persist? Um, you know, what is it that can, what is it that can give capital the power to, you know, have this this death grip on people's lives um, around people's throats that they're unable to pry pry it out, um, pry it open, and escape. And and that, that I think that is like it's a big motivating question. But I think Mao, um, it, it's one that motivates Mao to asking then questions of power, right? Because these these are of course questions of power. You know, capitalism is about different social relationships of domination. You know, people don't choose to live within the system. People are made to live within the system. And so then it becomes a question of how. How are they made? In what ways are they made um, to live within this system, to to rely upon a system that hates them, that wants to kill them? Uh, and yet, what is it that makes people rely on that system for their life? I mean, it's the fact that, you know, capitalism is the most wonderful system that's ever existed. I mean, that's why people rely on it. They rely on it because they understand that it's going to meet their wants and their needs. You know, you just enter a voluntary contract with an employer. There's no threat of violence or starvation. You're compensated fairly for your labor. They're compensated fairly for allocating the capital and providing management skills to help you operate machinery or data or information that you otherwise couldn't you know it's a it's fair and then they get compensated a little bit extra in a disparity between what you made and the value of it and you know what you're paid because they need that to reinvest that elsewhere right you can't just let your money sit so i think that's that's why people rely on capitalism it it, it to each according from each according to the, you know what they can, I'm going to fuck up the quote. <laughs> it's, too, it's too deep in the, in the capital brain. And if you don't like it, there's the door. If you Listen, don't like yeah. the market, you can leave. 
from each according what I need to each according what they need. That's that's capitalism. <laughs> yeah, no the the old the old Marx uh, aphorism: um, "You give me what I need, and I give you nothing in return." <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what you need. Um, that's really what you need. <laughs> and I'm I'm sorry. I think I think you've been in such close proximity to the demons that they've pres- the, the devils they've possessed you. <laughs> we're gonna have to do a we're gonna have to do an exorcism of this uh, bourgeois science and ideology. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna have like an ep- a TMK episode, like it's the codename Kids Next Door you know you know where we find out what happened to ed and it's like some uh which also sidebar did you know that in the codename kids next door dr yakub is canon (laughs) (laughs) that adults are made by a scientist uh, who wanted <laughs> and they and they have they also have a doctor they have a kid next door agent it's like number 13 number x and he's just a nation of islam black kid this is black kid a nation of islam bow tied tall as hell um but yeah doctor some doctor made adults to do what? tasks yeah. what <laughs> that's so fucking good back up a little bit uh so th- that explains why there's so many like middle school hoteps and and the oh, <laughs> <laughs> we was kids, you know. That's that's what it. That's what it is. That's what. It is. <laughs> middle school hoteps radicalized by codename kids next door. Such a good fucking bit. <laughs> <laughs> I never had a. I never had a hotep phase, but I definitely did have a phase where I was like really into Egypt, you know. And then, you know, as I think a lot of kids have an Egypt phase, mine didn't go far enough. I think what held it back from going far enough was that it got rooted really hard in um, Yu Gi Oh! Um, and <laughs> Yu Gi Oh! prevented it from going to the hotep length, right? Um, you can't, you're not gonna, what do you, you can't be a hotep carrying around a plastic. Uh, parts, you know, it's not gonna happen. It's not gonna Damn, happen. That's why Yu Gi Oh deprogrammed you it's from the uh, devil. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's so wild that Yu Gi Oh is the is the thing that stood in the way of you becoming. It really, I th- I'm cool looking back on it. I think it is uh, because instead, so because that blocked it, then I was like, huh. I wonder what Egypt was like, you know, and then I read like, I read stuff about Egypt. My weird, my weird Egypt thing was like pretending that Yugi could have that skin tone. You know, that was my, that was my, uh, that was as far as it went. You could, you could have been the Kyrie Irving of technology journalism. <laughs> could have been chopping it up with Donovic. Yeah, that would have been great. <laughs> In, instead of going on Tech Cool Savish, you can go on Talib Kweli's podcast. Yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. There's like a, in another, there's another universe in which I did stem. And I did hotep Egypt shit, and there's like some investigative report, and they're like, "Why is there so much hotep shit popping up in Facebook's algorithm?" <laughs> <laughs> wow, <laughs> funny thing. <laughs> there's this guy who just is obsessed with Egypt, and he won't stop promoting and boosting Egypt-related content. And sometimes that means hotep memes come through at a rate that doesn't make sense. 
<laughs> Ed, Ed has infiltrated Meta. He's an agent against. Uh, yeah. He's an agent against Yakub. If I worked at a tech company in this other universe, it would be doing something as stupid as that. You know, it would be totally. You know, promoting weird like Facebook macro images with like number X. You know, like in the background. <laughs> Wait a minute. Is that what is that what Elon Musk is on about? Is that why he's about X? Is Yo. this some, is he is is he going by Elon X now? A, he's like he's like he's like Twitter. Musk is my slave name. <laughs> <laughs> Elon X. No, there's a joke I made on Twitter. It didn't pop off because everyone there's a coward. But um, <laughs> it was I tweet I it was I said they're playing this at Twitter HQ every day now, and it's just the introduction to Malcolm X. Uh, Spike Lee's movie where he has the I charge the white man speech crazy (laughs) forever will have when I first heard that speech at the beginning I knew I was going to be a Spike Lee stand even though he did crypto or the fed of the death because that was a crazy thing to to have at the beginning of your movie in 92 but I'm just that's an intrusive thought in my head now anytime I saw the X sign or anytime I see them say X, it's a, it's a little crazy. I feel a little crazy with a South African white guy talking about how he runs X now. You know, and that's his thing. I want I want the Nation of Islam to sue him. I think I'm going to make it happen. <laughs> you got to. And he was really going off about, like, they're doing white genocide in yeah. South Africa. <laughs> they're in racial chat rooms showing plans to kill, kill us. us. All we've seen is hypocrisy. So he really, I think, starts laying out this relationship between, you know, coercion, ideology and economic power, which, you know, he's going to dig into a lot more in depth. Um, in later chapters, but it's really kind of crucial to understanding this idea of mute compulsion um, or economic power as something that deserves its own separate analysis because it's a it's a it's a, a relationship of power, um, a social relation that is doing something different than coercion or ideology. Um, in fact, it is worth uh, you know I think reading the passage uh, from Marx from Capital Volume One that Soramel takes this idea this and this name mute compulsion from um so in in this passage you know marx is describing how once capitalist relations of production have been installed um you know so so in other words you know uh, I'll, I'll back up so Mao writes, Marx also notes, however, that we cannot assume the forms of power required in order to bring about a certain state of affairs to be identical with the forms of power required for its reproduction. So, you know, here he's talking about the ideas of, uh, of primitive accumulation, right? The, that, you know, historically, the rule of capital comes about um, through conquest, enslavement, robbery, murder, uh, and violence, right? That it is a, a process of stripping people of their, their abilities to live on their own, to uh, stripping them of their abilities to 
reproduce themselves outside of the market or outside of capital relationships, dispossessing them of their property, of their lives, of their freedom, um, and forcing them into uh, you know, relationships uh, of production based on capital. And so, you know, this is, you know, historically analyzed, you know, the emergence of the capitalist mode of production comes into the world, as Marx writes, dripping from head to toe from every pore with blood and dirt. You know, it's a violent process. And so Mao is going off from there and saying, you know, that uh, the the forms of power required to bring about a certain a certain state of affairs to establish capitalist modes of production are not necessarily identical to the ones required for its reproduction to sustain the capitalist system to reproduce capitalist modes of production and social relationships right like you know there yes there is coercion and dominance in very direct and violent ways in society but it is it is not the the norm um it is not the thing that forces us to engage in the market or sell our labor or uh whatever it might be right it's so mal goes on the right on the contrary when violence has done its job another form of power can take over in a passage from which the present study derives its title, Marx describes how once capitalist relations of production have been installed, quote, the mute compulsion of economic relations seals the domination of the capitalist over the worker. Extra economic immediate violence is still, of course, used, but only in exceptional cases. In the ordinary run of things, the worker can be left to the natural laws of production, i.e. it is possible to rely on his dependence on capital, which springs from the conditions of production themselves and is guaranteed in perpetuity by them. And so this is kind of the whole basis of Mao's analysis here is that, you know, we can't understand uh, the the power within capital. We can't understand relationship, social relations of domination and production um, of com- of commodities, right? Like we can't understand all of these things uh, within capitalism if we only try to understand them through violence, coercion on one hand, or ideology on the other hand, right? The idea that like you know. Uh, capital has such great and grand control over people's minds that they are uh, happy, uh, happy you know, uh, marionettes being puppeteered by capitalism. That that they only believe what capital wants you to believe. Um, that you know, kind of a. a a really like severe case of false consciousness, right? That like, well, people continue to engage in the market because they buy into the idea that the market is freedom, that the market is good, um, that capitalism is the only way and the best way of doing things right. You know, the kind of mind control of capital over, um, you know, the proletariat, right? That like, of course, ideology plays a huge role as well in the kind of in the relationships of domination that are inherent to capitalism. But that's but it's not all right. You've got the hard power and the soft power of dominance and hegemony of repression and discourse. But there's more to it than a mere dialectic between coercion and consent. Um, You know, we know that. Lots of people don't 
engage in capitalism, don't engage in the market, uh, don't re- engage in these social relationships uh, of, of labor and production and what and whatnot. We know that like the vast majority of people do not do this out of some ideological adherence to capitalism. In fact, there's you know, a, a large scale, we talked about it, right? There's a large scale and growing kind of discontent with this system, right? Um, and yet, if people are not being forced by gunpoint to keep going to work, um, to keep buying and selling things in the market, and if people are not doing it out of um, their own, you know, uh, kind of mind-controlled uh, ideological consent to the system, then there must be something else operating here, right? Yeah, this- and that, that's the basis of Mao's uh, kind of argument. This reminds me of the basis of, you know, Orwell and later Chomsky's argument and Parenti's argument, and a lot of people who do political economy of maybe of media or thought, right? Is, um, you know, it's in unfree societies and authoritarian regimes, violence is a great way to make sure people think correctly in one way or another, right? You. And this also kind of dovetails with, you know, what Cory Doctorow was sharing about, like, the authoritarian dilemma in which, like, you don't have as much information on people besides what you get with your apparatus. So the bludgeon is a great instrument to corral people into just the basic general forms that you need them to. But in societies that are ostensibly free, you lose the ability to do the bludgeon, and that's when you really care what they think, right? And that's when you have some of the most awesome, you know, innovative engines of thought control of ideological um of uh indoctrination social control emerge in the societies where you precisely lose the ability to be truly violent or where the ability to be truly violent is shifted to other domains right because you know we have our society is ostensibly free one and still immensely silent in a in a vast array of ways right but that veil is there, right? Prisons, we have, a you know, in New York City, we have a prison on a fucking island. And then we have prisons in skyscrapers now, right? So you don't have to deal with them, right? People are cordoned off. And the violence of imprisonment, the torture that goes on there, whether it's solitary confinement, whether it's abuse by the guards, whether it's deplorable conditions, whether it's, you know, attacks from other inmates, those things are hidden, as are the mass violence of incarceration pipeline in of itself. And and similarly, I think like, you know, and you can you can you could do this with every arena of society where you pull back the veil, there's still outright violence, but there's been a retreat of it. And I think that makes that I think I like this idea of like this economic theorization needing to then talk about okay like well when the pretense of just like being violent all the time removes itself or dissipates and instead violence now has to have this veil violence has to be limited to specific arenas and even if the society is still violent even if people are still starving even if people are still getting assassinated and bombs are being thrown and people are put in cages you know there still have to be other ways to compel people because that's all on in of itself. That background violence is not always going to do the job. It's going to do the job for some elements of human behavior in the society, some deterrence, some social control, but it's not going to do, you know, the real heart and soul of capitalism, which is getting people to go out there and sell their labor. 
Yeah. And, and if they want to keep living, then they yeah. have to keep selling that labor, right? And this is the real root here. I want to quote again from Mao, um, where he writes, economic power, on the other hand, and here he's, you know, differentiating it from everything we've been talking about with, you know, violence, uh, coercion, and, you know, ideology, um, these things, right? Economic power, on the other hand, addresses the subject only indirectly by acting on its environment, Whereas violence as a form of power is rooted in the ability to inflict pain and death and ideology in the ability to shape how people think, economic power is rooted in the ability to reconfigure the material conditions of social reproduction, right? And so here, um, the concept of social reproduction is taken in this in a broad sense of all the processes and activities needed in order to secure the continuous existence of social life. Economic power is thus a concept designed to capture the ways in which forms of social domination reproduce themselves through inscription in the environment of those who are subjected to it. So what that means, in other words, is you know, social reproduction is literally the reproduction of society through the reproduction of people. So that's like the, the things you need, you know, food, water, shelter, you know, uh, the things the things you need as an individual, the things you need as a society, right, to engage in, um, you know, ma mating and making children and raising those children and 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 supporting yourself and a family, right? Of uh, all all of these kind of like biological necessities of sustaining life and sustaining a society. Um, that's where. Mute compulsion. That's where economic power targets its uh, it, its its operations, right? In in so far as through um, dominating the conditions under which social reproduction can happen, and you know, Mar uh, uh, Mao differentiates this with more traditional like neoclassical ideas of, of economics right um, and and as a way to as well really nip in the bud very early a common a, a common critique both a vulgar critique of vulgar Marxism um, is that you know it is this uh, economistic itself right that it reduces everything to the economy or to economistic um, logics or structures and so on and you know to be sure there are certainly like vulgar forms of Marxism um, that do that but those are forms of Marxism that don't understand that Marxism is itself in reality a critique of political economy right it is a critique of uh, uh, analyses of, of economic um, logics or structures that see them as irreducibly economic and independently economic right as this like separate sphere um, of society rather than in reality you know Marx is, is, is all Marxism is about analyzing social relations. Uh, and, and it is always about understanding economic systems as systems of power, which means fundamentally, inherently, it is not doing the kind of economistic trick of creating this like separate uh, sphere of the economy that then sits above and beneath everything else. It is instead saying the economy is not a separate sphere. It is a 
thing that is produced and continually produced through social relationships, right? There is no such thing as the economy as such, only insofar as it is um, a manifestation of uh, of specific relationships, um, social relations tied to things like uh, material production of, of stuff, of labor, of ownership, of value, of these other things. Yeah, and, and always of domination, of power. You know, he nips that in the bud and, we'll, and you know, he talks about it more because, of course, it's a, it's a, it's a counter-argument he has to make when, he's talk, when you're talking about economic power. There's always going to be somebody saying, you are just doing economism. You are just doing economic reductionism. Um, but far from it uh, with Mal and far from it with Marx, right? But he sets that apart from um, more kind of bourgeois economics, neoclassical economics in particular, which does do that. It is completely premised on creating the economy as a separate sphere, um, as a, a you know a, a, a place where you go to engage in economic activity. You know, i.e., like understanding the market as a just just a separate place in society where economic activities happen, um, and you can choose to engage in it or not. Right, um, and also you know. He, he goes in on economics as a discipline as being, you know, as he writes, quote, uh, the intellectual operation underpinning the discipline, you know, uh, rather as a, um, a discipline as devoid of power, right? It, like one of the core assumptions of economics as a discipline is that power does not exist or operate um, in the economy or in the market. And so it allows for statements like this one and you know from uh from you know milton friedman who you know this kind of reasoning of understanding you know these assumptions that are based on you know economic agents as who, who engage in transactions on the you know as these isolated hyper rational utilitarian utility maximizing individuals um that this has always existed throughout society right um, so that the capitalist economy appears uh, simply as what happens in human nature um, when it's allowed to unfold without the impediments of the state or the government or whatever, right? Um, that it kind of gives this universalism to capitalism um, and, and, and gives this this independent ontology, um, ex- you know, this existence to capitalist and capitalist exchanges. And, you know, Mao writes, this is the kind of reasoning that makes it possible for someone like Milton Friedman to present, quote, the technique of the marketplace as a way of, quote, coordinating the economic activities of millions by means of voluntary cooperation of individuals. And then, you know, as Friedman uh, writes in the quote, since the household always has the alternative of producing directly for itself, it need not enter into any exchange unless it benefits uh, unless it benefits from it. Hence, no exchange will take place unless both parties do benefit from it. Cooperation is thereby achieved without coercion. Mal continues to, to write in response to that, this passage is noteworthy because it ep- explicates what is usually hidden as an implicit assumption of economics, namely that people have the possibility of reproducing themselves outside of the market. 
This is the assumption which makes the market appear as a sphere of freedom. Not only are agents free to choose with whom they want to exchange their goods, but they are also free to choose whether they want to engage in exchange at all. This is why the market is usually understood as an institution providing individuals with opportunities, um, a concept which uh, the political economist um, would, uh, sorry, I'm forgetting um, her full name, but anyways, a concept which she calls, quote, absolutely critical to the conventional understanding of the capitalist system. So that is also, I think, a really key part here as well, is that our our actual like neoclassical understanding of the economy and of economics, the the dominant uh, you know kind of ideological understanding of markets, it has baked into it this assumption that not only is it free, not only does it provide opportunities, not only does it benefit everybody and do so through uh, pure cooperation with no coercion. There's also this baked in assumption that if you don't like it, you can leave, you know, that if you don't like it, there's the door. You can go become a peasant. If you don't want to become a capitalist subject, you can go back to being a peasant uh, and exist uh, outside of the market, off the grid. Um, And if you decide not to do that, it must be because you are voluntarily and willfully engaging in the market as the basis of social reproduction. One one thing I think that uh, reading Mao, so this introduction, reading a little bit ahead, right, that I think has also been really interesting is um, I am not I. Th- you know, as as listeners of the show will know, as the as the resident anarchist, uh, I don't know the inside baseball for a lot of the Marxist debates beyond, I think, some of the larger ones, right? Brenner, uh, Wallerstein, you know, being like the probably probably the main one because that has some sort of relevancy to like a question about tech, um, and 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 whether you know, and the techno feudalist debate, right? Um, and then various debates about like what the role countries are playing, what, how capital is flowing, or why capital is flowing in this way, that, and in that way. And I think the introduction here has been really interesting in trying to like step back and break down some essential pieces of Marxist thought that are important to understand if we're not just in the idea of like you know here's what a Marxist here's the formula for a Marxist uh, criticism, but like here's some of the pieces. And how they fit together, and what is missing, um, partly because Marxism finishes analysis, partly because there are developments in the modern day that we need to answer to, partly because there are you know countercurrents and arguments that we need to push back against, and partly because there's still like you know larger questions that are present, even if Marx did you know try to offer an answer for them, right? You the you know going through this and talking about getting rid of this idea of the economy being its own discrete set of um, its own discrete reality under which it has its own logic talking then about, okay, well, you know, if that's not the reality, if the economy is not this whole, this ontological object that, that we need to discover the, you know, the facts of, and that are, are immaterial and, and sit outside of our analysis, we have to discover them. We're fumbling in the dark for them, like that's like the economy is the real science, right? Then what 
then 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 thinking about okay like when we're thinking about it from social theory where has social theory imagining the economy led to weird interpretations of marx when has it hit on something that is interesting that marx has not touched on when has it pointed out a limitation of marx and marxist thought right and when has it failed to account for interesting insights such as like the critique of political economy in of itself right and bringing it all back home to this idea that you know the reason why we're interested in understanding capitalism well the reason why we're using marx is because we're interested in understanding capitalism and marx is thinking is constantly growing throughout his whole life and it doesn't and it's and it doesn't you know there's still unresolved questions but marx's analyses offer a really good set of first steps of, of really useful models and understandings and theories about what capitalism actually is because it's the essence of capitalism that we're concerned with we're trying to understand capitalism's coherent logics and incoherent ones the structures the dynamics at a, in a way that is both abstract enough to cut across all the variants in the world that's specific enough that we can tease out these theories about why how capital can compel people to act the way that they do reproduce capitalism despite the crisis and the contradictions um and and what parts of those production reproduction are uneven are continuous um are, are piecemeal what points can we you know wedge into what points can we not what institutions and structures and processes are ones that we are you know as part of that earlier discussion are ones that spring from it versus sustain it and what can we learn from that when we are thinking through constructing in another society or trying to agitate for another society or trying to undermine and rot or accelerate the rot of this one right of this of the of the core of the heart of the beating heart of this one which is capitalism right and i think that one thing that I think has been exciting about reading this, you know, the Mao's work very early on, though, still, is that he is constantly trying to remind in the in the text that, like, look, yeah, I'm using Marxist theory, um, and I'm using Marxist critique of political economy, and I'm using and I'm and I'm working through it, but we also must remember what it is that we're doing here, which is that we're like we are trying to understand what the heart of capitalism is, what it does to social relations, right? What it does to the economy, what it does to human beings and the political structures that they're doing so that we can subvert it um, and move on to a different society where we are not having the rules and the logics and the structures and the forms of capital written into our bones, right? Which in of itself is vague but i'm but i think and from the moves that he makes in this introduction clear that like he's, he wants to lay it out right he wants to identify specifically what are the things that capital is engraving into our bodies what are the things that are like tainting us what are the things that need to be removed and what are the things to be um you know to push against on a concrete level on an abstract level individual level so, you know society widest level um and i think yeah you know i think um I think that's my, you know, that's been like my sense, my takeaway from this, like that his hope is this economic power of capital, right? 
is going to step in and fill some of the holes left by other projects and attempts to focus on ideology, right? Or to reverse relationships um, or to insist that there's a different type of domination going on or that there are more discrete forms of power going on instead of stepping back and doing an economic theory without doing economism and without falling for the traps of weird capitalist assumptions about the economy being, you know, this great flying spaghetti monster that rules all of us in the sky. Yeah, no, that's, and I think a lot of that boils down to, I mean, this goes as well to like the, the real analytical clarity uh, that he has here uh, in, in, in the book. And, and, uh, a, a really great example of this, I think, is the like the the kind of simple definition of capitalism he provides near the very end of uh, the introduction chapter, where he says, "I will build on Marx's analysis and proceed from what I take to be the simplest definition of capitalism: a society in which social reproduction is governed by the logic of capital to a significant degree." And he goes on to say that you know the the a significant degree is is vague. You know what does that exactly mean? Um, you know what are the historical boundaries here? And these are all things that he'll get to as the book goes on, right? Um, but I really like that because it this kind of this constant going back to the conditions of social reproduction because it it also gives us a, a great place to start when. When you know, going off of what you were just saying at around, which is almost that point of like the what is to be done or what can we do with this theory, right? If we have a theory, if we have a better understanding of, of capitalism and it's you know a better analysis of it, well, what can we do with that, right? And and I I like that what economic power, what mute compulsion does is it brings our focus to the conditions, the material conditions of social reproduction. Because I think when we think about uh, violence and coercion as forms of domination, that um, as you know to foreshadow uh, some of the you know next chapters um, that we'll get into, right? When we think about violence and coercion as forms of domination, it is almost always looking at the state. Right. And so then if you ask what is to be done about capitalism and your analysis is based on a, um, a an analysis of, of power as violence and coercion, then you say, well, we need to uh, topple and take control of the institutions of power uh, of violence and coercion in society. Right. So it's like, well, if you want to get rid of capitalism, then you got to go uh, get rid of the state um, that props it up or, or state like institutions. Right. It, it's same with like ideology. Right. If you're ba- if your analysis is based on ideology, then then it's about like how we think and how we talk. Right. How we understand and frame and interpret the world. So then that becomes questions of like discourse and culture and consciousness, right? God change those things if you want to change capitalism. Um, whereas I think mute uh, economic power, mute compulsion is giving us a different place to focus, a different place to look at, to understand and to think about ways that, you know, changes must happen. Right. It's saying, well, it's it's about the fact that like everything that we do to reproduce ourselves, to sustain life, to sustain society, um, to sustain the social relationships we care most about, um, that all has to happen through 
uh, systems and structures uh, that are that that are uh, imp- you know dominated by the logics of capital, right? That like you know that capital has this immense in power on the environments of how we live um, and reproduce ourselves. That like and thus, if we want to challenge the domination of capitalism, it requires living outside of capital. But that doesn't mean like going like in the bourgeois economics, neoclassical economics, kind of exiting the market, right? Or doing some seasteading type shit, right? The the Benedict option of just exiting from society or whatever. It's like, no, it is a much tougher but more necessary project of being like, it's not enough to change the state. It's not enough to change how we talk or how we think if we don't change the material conditions of how we live, right? And how we reproduce ourselves and our families and our communities. Um, you know, so it brings it down to the real, to a human level, I think, and, and, and a very material one, a very social one. And that gets lost, I think, so much. And even like Marxist analyses of power is this like, constantly bringing us back to the material and the social as the areas we need to focus on um, and understanding how this economic power structures and dominates the environments, the conditions of the material and the social. Um, and that, that is like, I think just such a, uh, an analytically sharp and important uh, point already to start from as the not the conclusion but the kernel of this whole right. analysis and so yeah, it's, boy. it's very exciting it's gonna be fun it's gonna be a fun read yeah a hundred percent uh i mean that kind of brings us to the end of the conclusion or the introduction um is there any was there anything else that um either of you guys wanted to bring out so far what i've read i've comprehended more of this than anything i've ever read from marx it's weird i i try i grasp the concepts but i don't know for some reason he's like a rambling fool to me i can read fucking james joyce without a problem but mark sometimes i'm just like will you put the fucking bottle down for a minute dude never and and (laughs) so like i always took tip my hats to people who can read anything from marx and just like break shit down in the way that he's doing that i comprehend and i'm a lot like ed i'm not a i don't consider myself a marxist uh well marx was cooking you know but but he, I mean, yeah. second let's, third let's to not, say let's, that. Let's not, <laughs> let's not discount what he had to say about things from what I've read so far. This book uh, it makes me go back and I'm like, oh, so that's what that motherfucker was talking about. And it just mm. makes things a lot clearer. So if you're like me, who you, you know, you want to know and learn the theory, but for some reason, just to wrap your mind around some of the Marxisms and, and all of his writings kind of made it difficult this is going to make it a lot easier to comprehend this shit i mean i i 100 percent agree i mean mark's def my man definitely cooking but uh it is it is hard it's hard going it's it's long it's dense and it's written you know in the in the prose of a different time period as well which makes it very 
very hard. He He's a very good writer, a very literary writer, but it is a prose of a different time period, um, which which makes it harder to parse. The The syntax is just different than it is today, you know? I'm fighting for um, my life with the syntax. But, <laughs> you know, but, it's, but like you said, also, not a bad writer because some of, really, some of my favorite images that have been conjured up by socialists are almost exclusively his. I mean, uh, the over-reliance on Gothic imagery, I shouldn't even say over-reliance because that implies it's bad. It's beautiful. It's really some of the stuff that hooked me in in the beginning when I first read, um, when I first read, um, when we went for class, we had to do a uh, Feuerbach and then we did uh, the manifesto and then we did um, his you know manuscripts. And then, um, and then Capital, Volume One, Two, and Three. But there's a reason why my you know my man is still quoted uh, all yeah. over the place today. But but I also agree um, with you, Jeremy. That I mean, Mao's writing is Soren Mao's writing. People are going to keep thinking we're talking about Mao. Mao Mao's a dumb. <laughs> <laughs> next time, uh, but- next time, fans. <laughs> next time we'll read Combat Liberalism. <laughs> oh, always, always. Um, but Mao, Mao's writing is, I think, exceptionally clear. Um, even though he is doing like real abstract theory, um, it is exceptionally clear in its analysis, um, which I think is also why like, the writing is so clear and the analysis are so clear. And to me, those things are always intricately linked, right? Like clear writing is, is a hallmark of clear thinking. Um, and, and, uh, and I really think that like that, that is absolutely the case here. And, you know, while, while you guys are not super well versed in Marx, you know, to varying degrees. And while I am a full on, you know, I am a, a, a Marxist and a communist and, and whatnot. Um, I, I even, even me, I, I, I said it, you know, I read this book and, and, Things became so much clearer to me uh, in ways that they, uh, you know, were not as like it's it like going from a kind of in some ways it felt like going from like a kind of st- uh, a standard definition to a high definition understanding of these concepts, you know. Um, so it's not even just like read this if you need an introduction to Marx. It's like, no, read this even if you have spent years and years building a career uh, theorizing Marx because you then go read this and you're going to get some new shit out of it. You're going to see some new st- some new details in new lights that you didn't even recognize before. That's certainly the case with me. <laughs> Thank you everybody for listening thank you for subscribing uh we're very excited to to get the book club back online very excited to um dive into soren mao's mute compulsion a marxist theory of the economic power of capital which you can find uh on the premium feed every other week or so so you know every two weeks we'll be going through a chapter or so you know things might change from time to time you know as chapters are shorter or we have other things going on but you know that will be the basic schedule and so for for next time in two weeks uh we will be hitting chapter one 
conceptualizing power and capital. Um, so find us there. Find us uh, uh, everywhere. Thank you again for subscribing, and we'll catch you next time. Later. Adios. Yeah, 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 yeah.